0: How motivated are you to reduce the busyness in your life? Always motivated, E. Everyone exhibits differing levels of courage depending on their personal circumstances or appetite for risk. How often do you display courage? E, all of the time. How often do you expose your vulnerability to others? For example, expose yourself in a way that may make you uncomfortable. Most of the time, D. <laughs> Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and I'm calculating my intentional adaptability quotient. We'll explain what that is in just a minute. But first, I want to know, how's work? No, really, how is work going for you right now? Are you happy? Or do you think that's too lofty a goal and just getting through the day is the best that you can do? Stay with us, because today on This Working Life, we're hacking happiness at work. And just a heads up, there is a mention of suicide, so if this is triggering for you, you may want to skip the first two minutes. With me is Penny Lacasso. She's a guest lecturer at the Singularity University at the NASA Research Centre in Silicon Valley, and the author of Hacking Happiness, How to Intentionally Adapt and Shape the Future You Want. Hey, Penny, can you tell me about your Uncle Don,
1: please? Yeah, I think all of us in our families have that person that we all look up to. And my Uncle Don was that person that was put on the pedestal in our family. He was a, um, a successful entrepreneur and had the life you know, that many envied in terms of beautiful cars, nice houses, travel, all of those sorts of things. And so growing up, My whole aspiration was to cultivate the life that he had created. He was my definition of success and uh, basically at the age of 60 after watching this what seemed like happy, successful, amazing entrepreneur, I received a phone call on a Thursday evening from my brother very unexpectedly telling me that the um, police had found my uncle, Uh, he had taken his life and what unfolded from there was that uh, he had lost absolutely everything. My mother and my grandmother were two of his key investors. So they lost not not only their brother, but their life savings. And my whole definition of success in that moment, I think uh, imploded. So what did that
0: mean for your
1: ideal of success? At 39, you know, I was a bit surprised that I'd never actually asked myself, what does happiness look like for me on my terms? What's my definition of success? And that was kind of an epiphany because I think so many of us live our lives, and like I had done with Don, aspiring for a societal definition of success that doesn't necessarily make us happy it kind of we believe that if we tick a set of boxes and climb a certain ladder that once we've done those things we will arrive at happiness but at the age of 39 I ticked all those boxes I'd arrived at that magical point and I was sitting there feeling unfulfilled and it it kind of didn't make sense to me so what did you do Well, the first thing I did was I asked myself, what does happiness look like for me? And what I realised was that my happiness was found in human connection, positively impacting the lives of others and being present and in a moment. And the saddest part was that my success and the pursuit of it had sidelined all of those things. So they had been deprioritized, which was why I felt so unfulfilled. So I did something completely crazy. And within a seven-month period, I turned my whole life upside down in pursuit of happiness. I... Left a 16-year career as an executive in a global giant at the top of my game. I relocated my family from Perth back to Melbourne. I left an 18-year relationship and I started my own purpose-driven company with the sole intent of helping others hack their happiness and define success on their terms.
0: That's a really big change for something like
1: happiness. What people always say is, gee, that was courageous and I wish I could do what you've done which I find fascinating because anyone could do what I've done. The only barrier between doing it is yourself. The way I look at it now was that the realisation was that my life was completely out of alignment with the life that I wanted to live. And what I did was basically resetting the foundations to give myself the best possible chance at aligning the way I showed up in each day to actually give me the best chance of, of that happiness being realized more often.
0: And when people say that was courageous, um, you must have been feeling fear. So how did you deal with that fear then, Penny?
1: I started to embrace the fact that there would be no perfect plan in the realm of hacking my happiness. So what I started to trust was that everything that I had learnt up until that point wasn't necessarily gonna serve me in going forward. And the best way to be able to navigate the uncertainty was every day, just take one step forward and trust that that action would breed the clarity and and know that in the discomfort, it's where the growth occurs. So even though I'm feeling uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that what I'm doing is wrong. It means that I'm growing in the process. and every step that I take will be a stepping stone to where I'm meant to be.
0: So, Penny, you have asked me before what my definition of happiness is, but what is your definition of happiness?
1: My definition of happiness is being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, knowing that you can come out the other side just a little better than what you were before, because you have the right skills, support structure and resources to make that happen.
0: Well, can you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah. So I think that we are sold this definition of happiness where it's a place that we arrive at. And I actually don't believe that happiness is an end goal. I believe it's a state of being. It's a practice. Um, And in order to cultivate that practice, we need to understand the fact that we are not – when we step into this realm of hacking happiness – the reality is it's not healthy, nor is it possible to be skipping down the streets and painting rainbows every minute of every day. You can't experience happiness unless you experience sadness. And so when I say you need to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, the reality is life is complex, it is uncertain, and it's filled with pain. And so the more we learn to build skills that enable us to navigate that uncertainty and that complexity, the more likely we are to be able to inject more joy more often into each day.
0: So tell us this uh, concept of intentional adaptability then, Penny.
1: Yeah, so it it evolved out of a concept that Harvard came up with. Um, They wrote an article in 2011 around what they call an AQ, an adaptability quotient. They said it was the next competitive advantage, more important than EQ and IQ in the context of the complexity and uncertainty of the future. And um, it made a lot of sense to me because I thought to myself when I reflected back, everything that I had done in my journey of hacking my own happiness was required adaptability But all of the research and the science that I read about this concept of adaptability quotient came from the angle of productivity and the angle of how do corporations use adaptability to actually get more out of the people. And I thought, well, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to teach people how to intentionally adapt. I want to teach them how to bring meaning and consciousness to the forefront of their decisions when so many of us seem to just be walking through life, not asking questions that will enable us to find our happiness. So I basically came up with a hypothesis and the hypothesis was that you could teach someone how to intentionally adapt. And basically your intentional adaptability quotient, as I term it, is your ability or your ability to make intentional change in a complex and uncertain environment that is evolving at speed, which is pretty much life as we know it now. So I went out and created a uh, uh, hypotheses around the skills that you would need to build your intentional adaptability quotient. And I created an assessment so that you could measure and track your progress over time.
0: Um, Let's go to um, IAQ um, again. So what are some of the examples of attributes with someone with a high IAQ, Penny?
1: I term someone who has a high IAQ as someone who takes control of their time because they know that it is the most valuable resource they have available to them. And so therefore, they're not afraid to say no, and they say no often, because they know saying no to the busy will create the space for the things that truly matter and have impact. Um, They are comfortable in the stillness and the boredom, because they know that's where the dots connect. These are people who thrive in uncertainty and complexity And they trust the discomfort of not having an instant answer to their question. They make the time to cultivate deep human connections. They surround themselves with people who challenge them to look at the world through a different lens. And the other thing I would say is that someone with a high IQ would have a level of curiosity that means they would find themselves surprising themselves often because they're constantly questioning the belief system that they have and saying, what if I was wrong about that? How would I go about proving it? And
0: how uh, would developing intentional adaptability specifically help us at work, Penny?
1: So the first skill that we teach is how to focus in a world that's designed to distract you and create the space for more of what matters. Now, in a work context, that's really about dealing, what I, dealing with what I term the busy epidemic. And so, um, so many of us are busy doing, but we're not really sure whether what we're doing is what we want to be doing and whether we're actually doing the right things. And so many people tell me they don't feel in control of where their time goes anymore or where their mind goes So building skill in focus is about helping people work out what matters and prioritise it and prioritise thinking and being over doing in every minute of every day. The second skill that we teach is courage. And courage is about teaching people how to use fear and failure to shape the change they want to see for themselves and in the world around them. So I think, again, courage makes logical sense in terms of the workplace, because if we want to innovate, if we want to disrupt, which I think is more relevant than ever, we're going to have to get very courageous in the way that we deal with what's going on and the things that make us uncomfortable um, in order to do that. And then the third skill that we teach is curiosity, Curiosity as a state of being, not something you do in your spare time of which many professionals tell me they have none. And so we teach people how to have curious conversations, how to look at curiosity as as, I say, as a way of showing up in every moment rather than something you do, as I said, when you've got spare time, um, which no one seems to have. Beautiful. Beautiful.
0: Penny, I want to go deeper into the courage factor because I think um, often inertia mm. takes over with our lives and even if we'd like to get away from what society says, you know, uh, success factors are, often it is hard to change anything. So uh, what would you advise in terms of how we would help ourselves be more courageous? Have you got any examples for us?
1: Absolutely. Um, the practice that I use that has fundamentally shifted my ability to lean into fear is a very small practice called micro bravery. So with micro bravery, every day, you've got to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be huge. And it's got to be relevant to your, your discomfort. Don't compare whether it's courageous enough relative to someone else, because that, that will be your demise. <laughs> Focus on what makes you feel uncomfortable and do something small every day that leans you into that space. Now, it can be as simple as, for example, when we first went into lockdown, I signed up for a drawing course. I wanted to learn how to draw, but my best drawing is like a stick figure. That made me feel hugely uncomfortable. And what you will find is that if you do this every day, over time, it will build your courage and confidence to lean into significantly bigger discomforts, which gives you resilience and it gives you the capacity to have self-belief in a way that perhaps you've not had before. And that's one of the things that I get asked for the most, you know, how do I believe in myself to be able to make the change that I long for?
0: Thank you so much, Penny. Absolute pleasure, Lisa. Penny Lacasso, educator and author of Hacking Happiness, How to Intentionally Adapt and Shape the Future You Want. And if what we discussed raised any issues for you, the number for Lifeline is 131114. And by the way, if you were wondering, I scored Evolutionary in the IOQ. So my homework is to meet with someone who thinks differently from me. Hmm, isn't that lucky I've got producer Maria Tickle in my life then? With me is Dr. Tim Sharp. Tim's a clinical psychologist and his career is built on happiness. He's the founder of the Happiness Institute, and yes, that's a thing, and he consults with some of Australia's largest companies around creating a positive work culture. G'day, Tim.
2: G'day there. How are you?
0: Well, I'm feeling pretty good, pretty happy, I might say. (laughs) Now, Tim, what did you think about Penny's method of measuring adaptability?
2: There's a whole range of constructs within positive psychology and psychology more generally that we that we know go towards, well, not just happiness, but good mental health and, I suppose, high functioning in life. And, uh, well, I, I probably use slightly different language, but one of the, the, the phrase that I really like, which I think is similar to what she was talking about, is psychological flexibility. And that's the ability to adapt flexibly to whatever's going on around you because I think historically psychologists have often sort of looked at coping strategies or particular ways of coping and kind of thought well they're either good or bad but what we've started to realize in more more recent years or and I guess the last decade or so is that it's not necessarily that certain strategies are good or bad it's that they might be more or less helpful in certain situations and what we know is that those people who are more flexible, who have that psychological flexibility, who can adapt to those different situations and use different skills accordingly, tend to function a lot better despite what's going on around them. So, so yeah, I think I agree with that. I just probably use slightly different language.
0: Now, we heard Penny's definition of happiness. So in a nutshell, how would you define happiness, Tim?
2: The first and simplest is that uh, happiness is one of a number of positive emotions. So along with joy and satisfaction and calm and contentment, happiness is one of those things that feels good. But that's a fairly fleeting emotion. It comes and goes pretty quickly. So what my work is really about, what positive psychology is really about, is uh, what we might otherwise call thriving and flourishing. Uh, Now, that includes positive emotions, so it is about feeling good, but it's also about doing good and having good quality relationships and living a life of meaning and purpose. So it's a, it's a broader, bigger, longer term concept that goes beyond just those, uh, as I said, those fleeting emotions that might come and go within minutes.
0: What do you think about people who subscribe to the view that, you know, work, you get paid for that. So aren't we expecting too much to be happy at work, Tim?
2: Uh well, look, that's fine i think I mean, I think it is important to note we're all different, and work will mean different things to different people, so there are at least sort of three ways to think about what work might mean. Some of us are lucky enough, I guess, to find a passion, something that we love to do, something that that people might call a calling that you might even do whether you were paid for it or not. Now, if you can make a living out of your passion out of your calling, that's fantastic you can you know hopefully love if not every minute of every day, then most of them. The next group, it's not necessarily a calling or a passion, but they can find ways to enjoy most of what they do. And that's probably the bulk of people. Um, you know, it's not necessarily your ideal thing. You still want to get paid for it, but you can still find ways to enjoy it, to have fun while you're doing what you need to do. There, there are a group of people for whom work is just a paycheck, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because we can still find fulfillment and joy and happiness in other areas of life. But it is important or I would encourage as many people as possible to try to find happiness at work for a couple of reasons. One, we spend a lot of time doing it, um, so you might as well try and enjoy it as best you can. And two, we know that those people that do enjoy what they do, who can find quote unquote happiness at work, tend to perform better. So it's actually in all of our interests, um, including employers, to try and promote happiness at work in a a real and meaningful way, because again, everyone benefits. It's a real win-win. Now,
0: Tim, I think a lot of people think that perhaps climbing the corporate ladder, getting more status and money and power will actually make them happy. Can you share your own experience of that striving and how we might reframe that a little
2: bit? And again, at the risk of repeating myself, everyone's different. So there's not necessarily anything wrong with climbing the corporate ladder. It can actually be, you know, a path to fulfillment and satisfaction. Where a lot of people go wrong is that they actually climb the wrong ladder. Um, (laughs) They're they're climbing the wrong path, so to speak. Um, But if you're on the right path, if you're on the right ladder and you are stepping up and up and up, that's, again, not entirely a bad thing. We know that achievement and accomplishment um, can contribute to feelings of happiness and satisfaction in life um, but again I, get, I think where a lot of people go wrong is that they're climbing the ladder that they think other people want them to climb or that society is telling them to climb and, and that's where it can be problematic because if we're not living I guess an authentic life you know it does make it harder to be happier and and I suppose I, I can give a personal example of that where where I've climbed the ladder successfully but not necessarily been happy. <laughs> the first one was when I pursued my initial goal, which was to become an academic, um, and I achieved that at a fairly young age and then realised that academia, for a variety of reasons, wasn't for me. So I then took a bit of a career change and went into private practice, discovered a bit of an entrepreneurial gene and built what became a very big business. But then I discovered I didn't really want to be a businessman. <laughs> so in, in both situations, I'd achieved quote-unquote success but I wasn't necessarily as happy as I thought I could be or wanted to be. And it took me you know, a couple of other turns to really find the right balance for me.
0: Tim, I want to uh, talk about this concept of happiness b- being the way. So sort of understanding that it's maybe there's a bit more choice in the way we view things in the moment rather than seeing happiness as a goal on the horizon. So can we Talk about um, what you call automatic negative thinking as an example of that. And can you give me some specific examples of that negative thinking that we might be able to look at in a different way at work?
2: I can, and yep, I'd love to do that. Um, But let me just go back to the point you made introducing that question, which is, you know, happiness is the way. And at the risk of contradicting you, I, I think it's actually happiness is both the journey and the destination. I think too often we see them as sort of mutually exclusive or sort of dichotomous, yeah. you know, separate terms. And and in fact, they're not. There's no doubt that it, arriving at a destination, that achieving or accomplishing a goal can be very satisfying. It's great to tick something off your to-do list to, you know, work hard and achieve something. But I totally agree with you that we also need to, as best we can or as much as we can, enjoy every step along the way. So I guess what I'd encourage people to do is rather than, you know, ask that question, is it the journey or the destination? is found in both because that's what I th- and I think that's what the research suggests so uh, and and what my experience suggests so so that just that's just one point uh, onto the idea of automatic negative thoughts maybe just to briefly define them that whether we realize it or not the fact is that every minute of every day all sorts of thoughts go through our mind that's just who we are as human beings our minds are constantly ticking over with you know thoughts about what's going on and what's going to happen and what happened in the past and and, and that's fine. That's that's sort of who we are as human beings. But what a lot of us don't realize, well, one, we're not often not aware of those thoughts, which is why we call them automatic. So you know, that they happen in what we call sort of unconscious or subconscious or we're not necessarily mindful of them. But two, uh, the other thing which is more important is that not all of those thoughts are helpful. I mean, just because we think something doesn't mean it's true. And, in fact, we know... That many of the thoughts we have in some way or other are unrealistic or unhelpful and what that means or why that's important is that that can contribute to uh, unnecessary or excessive levels of distress so if our thoughts are unrealistic or unhelpful we can be more distressed or more depressed or more anxious than we really need to be which is why it can be helpful to firstly become aware of them Uh, Secondly, to become aware of the common types of automatic negative thoughts. And then thirdly, to find ways or to learn ways to correct them or modify them or challenge them in some way so that we can have more helpful thoughts and therefore enjoy life more often. And I guess just to to finish up answering your question, some of the more common examples are things like uh, catastrophizing, making mountains out of molehills, or um, personalizing, which is taking blame for things that aren't necessarily your fault. Uh, or black and white thinking, which is something I touched on a bit earlier, that idea, you know, is happiness the journey or the destination? Well, that's a bit black and white, whereas, you know, I, as I suggested, I think it's a bit of both. Uh, more often than not, life isn't black and white, it's in the grey or it's in the colour in between. So, you know, there are a couple of examples. There's also, you know, fortune telling or trying to predict the future, which we can't do, over-generalising, you know, taking one thing and making it everything At the end of the day, what's important is, again, recognising that thoughts are just thoughts. Uh, Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. If they're not helpful, then how can we minimise them or manage them and develop more helpful ones so we can cope better and live better as often as possible? Thanks, Tim. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Dr. Tim Sharp and Tim's new podcast, Habits for Happiness at Work, 10 Steps for Living Your Happiest Work Life, is available on Audible. And if, like us, you're fascinated by the human brain at work, check out our other episodes on brainstorming, burnout and emotional agility at work. Just scroll down through our feed. And please do us a favour, leave a review. It helps others find us. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who's happiest when her children now leave for school in the morning. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working.